You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, The Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm Olivia Potts. And today on Table Talk, we're delighted to be joined by Charlie Stebbins. Charlie is an acclaimed food director who began his career in stills photography before taking the commercial world by storm. He has directed ads for a host of different brands, including Hovis, Guinness and Mr Kipling. Most famously, he directed the This Is Not Just Food, This Is M&S Food adverts, that indisputably changed food advertising and helped redefine the term food porn. Charlie, welcome to Table Talk. Thank you very much. Charlie, we're going to start where we always do, at the beginning, and ask you, what are your earliest memories of food? Right, well, I had an extremely attentive mother who, I imagine, having lived through the war as a child herself, insisted that we all ate more butter and cream than she could possibly force down our throats. And although it didn't serve my father very well, who died rather younger than he should have done, having just retired and then went bang with a heart attack, for myself and my two brothers, we just had a lot of chicken, a lot of cream, and I remember broccoli was my least favourite thing. But having then been sent away to school for about the age of seven, there was a sort of weird chapter for ten years of just having such regimented food that you knew exactly what you are going to get every day of the week without fault, especially at a prep school where I was. And the food was pretty rum. But actually, as it turned out, later on, school food was actually incredibly good down in Dorset at Sherburn, where I was. And I was rather grateful to the fact that the house where we were in, I was in, had been a hotel prior to it. So it had fantastic kitchens, but that was about the measure of it. So food, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've never been a great sort of gourmand. I know what I like and I like cooking, but right at the beginning of my life, I think mum's probably most famous thing was her chocolate mousse. That was the one thing that we always hankered after on a Sunday when we came back for an exiac weekend or something like that. And did she she teach you to cook at all? Not hugely. Um, Certainly not in the way that it's been handed on to my children. They all love cooking. And I, I think possibly because it was such a definite role for my mother to be in the kitchen with three boys and and her husband to look after that that we'd been cooking as well it probably would have slightly reduced her sense of importance (laughs) within the family not having had a job at all in her life so um i think that was definitely her province and what were meal times like as a child Were, were they important to your family were they ritualistic yes no definitely there's a case to be sat down and enjoyed together my father was, in my early days, was a bowler-hatted commuter as a lawyer to the City of London. He used to head off before we were up at half past six in the morning with a tightly furled umbrella and a bowler hat, and he'd come back at about 7.30 in the evening by which time we'd be in bed. So, but that said, I mean, we always just sat down together at the weekend. Funnily enough, the City used to work on a Saturday in those days too, so he was never back to, until a late lunch on Saturday at about three in the afternoon commuting back to dear old Guildford. And uh, so it was a rather sort of classic 
pretty bourgeois life, but meals did matter. And certainly uh, it's been a lesson to me and indeed sort of family life with um, us here has always been sit down, we all sit together, none of this sort of it's out on the counter and um, you just help yourself sort of thing and that's always been the way with the children. And I think the importance of conversation around a dinner table is as important as the food you're going to eat, quite frankly. And you mentioned school food and you said it was atrocious at prep school and, and improved later on. What, what kind of dishes do you remember being particularly atrocious and then what were you pleased to see when you got to Sherbourne? Oh, well, there were sort of classic things like we were given junket, which everybody knows, every child in the world despises, so why even have it on the menu? Spam fritters in those days, I remember, on one of the evenings was a classic. Sunday evenings, which are so depressing, especially if you've been back home for the weekend, we'd get back in time for vespers and then we'd have to sit down to a boiled egg, which is invariably like a brick. You could play squash with it. And it, it was just... It was just sort of bad bread, you know, absolutely the cheapest bread, margarine, not butter. And it was just crap, really. And I don't know how the teachers put up with it because they would sit at the end of every table having to eat exactly the same thing. But at, 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 when we were older, um, us, we were all in the same house in the same school, we were fed actually incredibly well. And uh, it, I think it was a a blessing that we had this rather stupendous-looking woman who manned the kitchen with huge forearms and very, very large pots and pans to wield. And she she cooked en masse incredibly well, and it was very varied and good grub, actually. I, I don't remember any of the meals being turn-offs at all. And we got through a lot of energy, and so there's always a bar where you could grab milk during the course of the day, and there's also always a stack of bread you could grab sort of to toast in your study. And certainly break between lessons, between the third and the fourth lesson, you're allowed back to your house, which is a bit of a sprint from the classrooms. And we used to, in the spa supermarket, buy a packet of Abbey Crunch biscuits. We'd grab our pint of milk for an all-milk cup of coffee, and we'd eat an entire packet each of Abbey Crunch biscuits dunked in a pint mug of coffee. Unbelievably un- unhealthy, but, you know... The you'd... child's metabolism. Yeah, it just yeah. burnt it up. <laughs> and what about holidays? Were they spent at home or did you go abroad as a child? Abroad was very infrequent. I can only remember about two or three holidays abroad with my parents, once to France when I was about eight. But I had a grandmother who lived in Southwold, which is sort of sort of the classic seaside town, as you probably know, on the East Coast, that's sort of preserved in aspic. And she was sort of one of the pillars of the community and would bake cheese straws and fudge to keep the church roof up or maintain the fisherman's reading room. And she she was a prodigious cook in a way, very, very good. But she had the art, again, I think, for having survived two wars, of being able to make food stretch and could make things very good, that were very cheap. So there's lots of incredible puddings that you don't come across now, like sago, tapioca, and of course, rice pudding, which my father would always want the skin off for some weird reason. None, none of us really wanted to have the skin off the rice pudding. And then duck was the, always the pièce de résistance with my grandmother, and a large Aylesbury duck between about six of us. Admittedly, quite of us were quite small in those days. She could stretch at least three meals out of that with soup and cold duck and hot duck and whatever else you can do with a duck. 
But it was sort of honest to God stuff. And a very good local butcher called Baggots, I seem to recall in Southwold, did fantastic sausages. So there's a lot of sausage eating going on as well, either cooked at home or down on the beach on a primus stove in the sand. It was sort of, it was rather glorious, actually. And as a child, um, those holidays were um, about as good as you can imagine, buckets and spades and bicycling and wielding a golf club, the four of us with my father around the nine-hole golf course and just, you know, playing Scrabble in the evenings, I seem to recall. Yeah, Sounds very, very lovely. And tell us about when you arrived at university, you studied history at York. What were you eating when you were at university? Well, I attempted to become a cook. I thought, uh, like most naive boys, the way to a woman's heart is, is, is partly to show a little bit of acumen with a, you know, spatula and a dob of butter. And I remember a catastrophe once where I hadn't realised that when you make a vegetable stew that each time you heat it up and let it cool down, you actually should take a bit out then just heat up that bit. And this this vegetable stew got fizzier and fizzier as the week went by, <laughs> as it started to putrefy. Um, <laughs> but I had a few standards, you know, like a shepherd's pie and a... I'm trying to think what else I was reasonably good at cooking then. I, I could roast a chicken and stuff like that. I, 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 I had a crack at it anyway. A lot, a lot of boys at university or men, I suppose, um, were rather sheepish about attempting anything. But I think that's pretty impressive for university food. I, I lived off bourbon biscuits for pretty much the whole three years of of my of my degree. No, there was there was rubbish in between for sure. But... <laughs> I'm talking about cooking with intent, where there was a there's prey the other side of the table <laughs> with a you goal know, in to mind. Impress, exactly. <laughs> and where did the photography come from? Because that started when you were at university, is that right? It did. I think I think a sensibility to things aesthetic came from my father, who who had always loved art. So that was a gift from him. Certainly, art wasn't a feature of my education. I mean, rugby was way above art at um, school where I was as uh, something of importance. And uh, in fact, boys who did art A-level were sort of rather poo-pooed, to be honest, and which is a great shame. But uh, I was given a camera by my grandmother for a birthday, my 21st birthday, towards my last year at university, and I got completely obsessed with it. And it, um, I suddenly thought, well, what was I going to do with a rather dire history degree, which was probably what I was heading for? And... Uh, it just took over my life, this camera, and thank goodness it did. And in a way, that there are two or three sort of seminal things, I suppose, that can happen in a lifetime, which are turning points. And the first turning point was the arrival of that camera and meeting a fellow. I'd done an ex- exhibition of prints to go up, rather sort of classic amateurish photography stuff, a bit of architecture, sleeping women on a bench or something in South End, and then a couple of naked pictures of my girlfriend at the time, all, all pretty classic all black and white. And this fellow who was the editor of the uh, student magazine there called Noose, called Charlie Clothier, who went on to be a very good um, conservation journalist and actually has saved probably more marine species single-handed than anybody else on the planet other than Jacques Cousteau. Um, He interviewed me and then he said, well, what am I going to do when I leave Um, university? And I had uh, about sort of four or five months to go before doing my finals. And I said, well, it'd be great to go to the Royal College of Art, but there's no way I'll get in there. I have not even done an art degree. And he said, well, how do you know? Why don't you call them? And I said, well, 
was mad. I mean, why would they want me? He said, well, call them now. And he handed over a 10p bit or whatever it was. The phone was in the corner of this restaurant called Gumbo where you could eat masses of sort of muesli and stuff like that. Classic um, food at university in those days and, and everybody serving you was dressed in sort of alpaca and stuff from the Andes. It was sort of latter-day hippiedom when I was at university. And... Um, Lo and behold, he insisted that he wouldn't publish anything about my exhibition unless I made a phone call. So I got through to the exchange, got through to the Royal College of Art, got through to the photography department, and the guy called John Hedgeco, who had written a seminal book about how to take photographs and was in charge of the course, picked up the phone at the other end. He said, you won't believe it, but tomorrow we're doing our last round of interviews. We're interviewing 16 people. One's dropped out. If you're here at 8 o'clock in the morning with your pictures, we'll consider you. And I just couldn't believe it. And he said, well, you've got to go, you've got to go. So I blagged a car, drove down to London and arrived, you know, great unwashed with these pictures under my arm. And they're all in sort of cardboard frames. So it was a bit cumbersome to take them in. But I had a sort of case to put them in. And uh, they said, look, great, we love what you're doing. Not this year, but reapply next year and see how you progress. And that was the first moment to someone say, have faith in your own eye. And pursue it. So I then thought I'd give myself a year to see who I could work for as an assistant. And that was the, the door opening. And I was very lucky who I worked for. And it took a lot of persuading to my parents that this was a sensible course of action. And in fact, my father was sweet about it. He put on all the reasons why I shouldn't do it. And then the moment he realised I was completely, completely serious about it, he was completely behind me, which was um, very sweet of him. Were, were there any other avenues you'd considered at that stage for post-university or was there no plan at all? None at all. I would have probably ended up in insurance in the City of London. There are lots of family connections in that regard. I had no desire to be involved in pushing bits of paper around. Funnily enough, my very last paper of my history exam, we had seven sit-down papers to do and then the rest was coursework or a thesis, was the easiest paper of all. It was a conceptual paper you couldn't revise for, like the importance of animals in history or is religious symbolism, you know, whatever it is. And I went blank on that paper and I was really looking forward to it. And then it was going to be, well, hey, end of term, freedom. And I thought I could never trust myself to do an exam again because I froze. I didn't write a single word. And so the thought of doing anything that required professional examinations like law, like my father, or indeed insurance, where you'd still have to take exams. I just didn't think I was going to have faith in myself to do that. So I'd do something very cerebrally unchallenging. <laughs> so there we are. And Charlie, tell us how you, because at first you weren't photographing food. Tell us how you, how you sort of discovered that as a subject. Uh, I worked for a wonderful fellow called Jake Wallace, who is a real reprobate, but a wonderful man. I learned a lot about life as well as photography, but he didn't do any food photography. He did sort of cars, he did cosmetics, um, you know, whatever it was, but it was never food. And then um, I was shooting some cosmetic pictures, sort of illustrations of a book that Deborah Hutton, who was the health editor on Vogue, had written called Vogue Complete Beauty, and it turned out to be a massive bestseller. But anyway, in amongst the chapter she had written was one on diet, which was tiny. In these days, it would be huge. But they wanted eight food photographs done to illustrate the recipes in that section of the book. And they said, would you give it a go? And I thought, well, I'd never done it before. And there's always been this mystique that it was a sort of special niche area that people should get involved in. 
Anyway, I, I had a crack at it. And um, Octopus Books, who published it, were the biggest, pretty well the biggest publishers in London of illustrated books, really liked it. And so literally within two weeks, they said, well, we've got another book to do for Sainsbury's or something. Would you like to do the pictures and that? So I did that, and then another one. then, a, And it was literally the beginning, and this was probably about 1983, and it was the sort of start of the tsunami that built and built and built and built and built. They were probably in London only sort of, you know, and you could count the number of food photographers on one hand, really, who were good. And it was a niche I'd never expected to get dragged into, but I was. I mean, the best part about it was that actually Deborah I then went on to marry and had four children with, and uh, so that was the cherry on top. But also getting involved in food photography as an avenue for a relatively creative mind was fantastic because it's evolved aesthetically so much over the last 35 years. And sometimes you feel that you're at the sort of leading edge of it and you think, yeah, hey, here he's got a new idea, you know, and you sort of think other sort of peers in photography might be a bit jealous that you've stolen a march on them and then other times you see somebody else has just done something rather amazing elsewhere and you thought oh bugger why didn't I think of that so it's been a really interesting journey aesthetically I think and the rise of food everybody knows is just goes on relentlessly. And how do you think your style has evolved I mean what, what were your early photos like do they look similar at all to what you're doing now? No very different I think I think like anybody, um, they tend to sort of look to their elders and betters to, to, and become rather sort of mimic, mimics of, of, of their elders and betters. And in those days, it was the cusp of moving away from the dreadful 60s and 70s food photography that was really very unsympathetic when it came to the food and rather poorly lit. And there are a couple of very good food photographers, Robert Golden and Bryce Atwell, who are a lot more painterly in their approach, more like Dutch still lives. It had a lot more care in the lighting, but the propping was also hugely important, very textural. So it was definitely sort of chiaroscuro meets chopping board and the food was placed thereon. So it lent itself too to a lot of appreciation in the early 80s was more for Mediterranean food. So that sort of lighting was appropriate with a bit of sunshine dappling in or whatever it was. So um, that sort of Provencal look was easy to, to manifest in a way. I think, I mean, interestingly today, there's a lot more North European, Scandinavian look and obviously you've got Noma and places like that. And there's a lot more North light, less sunshine, flatter light, cooler light. And and so things have, have sort of depended, the, the lighting sort of is sampled sympathetic really to where the recipes tend to come from very often and perhaps one of the the, the big changes was everybody used to be on tenterhooks waiting at the end of the, well probably beginning of the 90s actually rather than the end of the 80s Australian Vogue used to publish a food supplement every quarter and that was all shot out of doors and it was invariably shot on like a instead of shooting on a big plate camera like I used to shoot on 10 by 8 sort of or four, 5 by 4 inch sheets of film this would be shot on either 35mm or on a Hasselblad or something like that. And it was a lot more immediate, a lot more daylight, and you had a lack of depth of field in it. Depth of field, when I first started, was like this sort of insistence that it, everything had to be sharp, and you'd almost reshoot something because the chair beyond the table at the end of the set where you've got the plate of food was out of focus. I mean, it was a real tyranny. 
And all this stuff from Australian folk had this very shallow depth of field. And that lent itself to a whole new look of just about, you know, the rocket leaf on the pasta. And it meant that especially when you then got into filming stuff, editing soft depth of fields um, is a lot easier than sort of hard, sharp images, which sort of jangle when you try and cut from one to the other if it's a lot more amorphous with um, a shallow depth of field surrounding the sort of central focus of what you're doing, it, it, you can be a lot cuttier with it. How did you move from the static photography to to the, the filmic photography? Well, I, well, I, well, well, filming, I had no intention of doing it at all. I was, I was shooting stills for Perrier Water and they said, oh, we've got a commercial to do. And I thought, wow, should I, shouldn't I? So it meant... A, finding a production company to ally myself to, to manage the production. I didn't know anything about film lighting. I used to always light with flash and rather than ambient light like tungsten or indeed daylight. So I got on board a very good lighting cameraman. I had an idea as to how we might approach sort of some of these Perrier shots. And we started shooting. It was a big five-day shoot, which was is I came to understand, you know, it's a long, long shoot to do. But on day two of it, Perrier had this absolute PR disaster when they discovered benzene in the water. And I was surrounded by an agency and clients who had just made the decision to withdraw every bottle of Perrier around the world off every shelf. So what I was doing for the next four days, they couldn't have given a fig about. And I just carried on uninterrupted, thank goodness. Um, but anyway, that was the beginning. And from then on, I um, started to, well, the production company that represented me started sort of parading me around agencies. And I, and I got a very good innings of Sainsbury's for about four years, doing a lot of ads for them to begin with. Uh, and it gradually took over my life until about 16 years ago when I stopped doing both stills and film. And then when my dear wife Debs was ill and then sadly died... I then completely gave up stills and that dovetailed with the beginning of um, what was to become the seminal campaign for me for M&S. And that was such a busy campaign, the shooting so often during the year, that I didn't really need to do any stills and it was, I just stopped and that was it. And and I've been filming commercially for TV ever since and no regrets about the transition at all. Tell us, Charlie, about the M&S campaign and, and sort of, where it came from and and whether you knew that it was going to become such a big kind of cultural sensation? Well, in a word, no. That I had briefly, two years before, done a short campaign for them, which is very different to the one, the big campaign that then we embarked on in 2000 and sort of four or five. The most unusual thing about it was is that although they got the, the seminal line, this is not just a potato, this is a hand-reared, you know, ripped from the earth potato with a wonderful Dervla Kerwin's voiceover to it. What was unusual was that the agency approached about five directors with a total blank sheet of paper saying, what would you do to do a brand new look to food advertising? And I've never had a brief like it before or since. And it was threatening in many respects, but also an amazingly invigorating thing to take on as a challenge. So I looked at everything that was going on. And of course, the hero of the hour was Jamie Oliver going bish bash bosh for Sainsbury's very cutty, very personality-driven, very, you know, dynamic. And I was thinking, well, if Sainsbury's, who's the main opposition in those days to M&S, is doing something, you know, which has probably got 30 cuts in a 20-second film, um, the quintessential opposite would be to have 
the idea which I sort of sold it on to the agency and subsequently to M&S was if it looks that good that close up then it must be good and so the idea was to get so into the food that it was almost forensic the way you looked at it but it still had to look beautifully lit and not scientifically lit and super slow motion so you literally had one second the first ad was literally seven or eight second individual shots so there are four shots say starting with some chicken some broccoli a pudding and then some wine and that was all only four shots in the whole film over 45 seconds i mean it was just unheard of and it was very daring of the agency to sort of accept the idea. It worked with the sort of rather languorous um, voiceover. And then watching the creative director and um, the head of marketing at m and who was wonderful, trying to work out what music to do, I thought they were having a midlife crisis because they came up with Albatross by Fleetwood Mac. And I was thinking back to my record collection pretty well at school and thinking, my God, this is just so passe. What do you think you're doing? But it turned out to be a perfect mix. And it struck a chord, I guess, with a a generation of sort of 40, 50-year-olds, I I don't know, who they were aiming for. And uh, the rest is sort of history. But I think probably the key ingredient in that very first film we did was the melt in the middle Belgian chocolate pudding. And that was the sort of described as food porn. You know, it was everything the devil would want on screen. And it took about a day and a half to shoot it. We shot it about 37 times, this fork going through the pudding and then the ooze of the chocolate coming out and then the dollop of cream on top that just sort of flows down after it. And it's actually a composite of two shots, which in those days was quite difficult because it was shot on film and not digitally. It was, it was, one had to be, one had less license, as it were, than one does today on digital film. But it was the thing that got the column inches. And so they had masses of talk in the press about the ad because of that particular shot in it. And I think were it not for that, it wouldn't have had that initial sort of sprint at the beginning of the campaign that gave it real sort of energy and flight and and it was just very conspicuous amongst everything else that was being done. Tell us about the mechanics of setting up a shoot like that, particularly given the fact that you're you're working with a lot of shots that are very close up of the products. I mean, what are the sort of esoteric demands of a, of a food shoot? Well, of course, at the moment, it's all very tricky with being COVID, you know, prepared. But it, it typically, when the, we're not harassed by this dreadful virus, a script comes in, it's probably coming in to two or three directors in London. You all then do a treatment. That treatment goes back to the agency for them to say, well, which one should we go with? They may already know their preference, but virtually every job is competed for between three people. And then they make their choice. You then have further meetings. And then you and your producer get together to um, make sure that you've got the crew booked, uh, how many days shoot you're going to need to do it. And so invariably, one can probably shoot about sort of five, five shots a day, something like that, five or six shots a day. If it's very, very tricky, you may only be able to do one or two shots. So if it's super high speed and it requires lots of rigs, so I'm shooting Guinness at 800 frames a second, then uh, you would sort of make sure that you had time on your side to do it over and over and over again and sort of clear up and over and over again. But uh, I tend to work with the same crew over and over again. 
the same home economist or two or three home economists I tend to or food stylists normally as they're called um, there's a wonderful fellow Pete Smith who I work with a lot um, who is sort of like the granddaddy of food he'd hate me calling him that but in fact he's just retired sadly but there are a lot of his progeny who work for him who I also work with now so he's a key ingredient I always like my own work which is uh, unusual so having in the early days work with a lighting cameraman I learned as much as I could for about two or three years off them and then started lighting myself again like I would do as a stills photographer so I like my own stuff and I'm incredibly hands-on around the plate I know exactly where the light's coming from so I know exactly where I want everything on a plate to sort of be lit nicely and compositionally work and so you end up with probably about 12 crew typically surrounding me shooting a lettuce leaf bouncing on a plate or something it, it's it's sort of ridiculous there are, it, it it's a uh, a lot of people who watch film crews get the impression that everybody's standing around leaning on a shovel doing absolutely nothing but in fact each of them as i know full well are incredibly good at their own particular thing and none of them, even though they may have been able to have a kit for two hours, when they have to perform, they really have to perform because if they cock it up, then it's cocked up for everybody and then you have to sort of start again. So there's a sort of great camaraderie as well as sort of discipline in the moment. And um, in what I do, what I'm trying to do is make a happy accident happen. So if I'm sort of pouring custard over a, uh, an apple pie, say... I, I get the re the best pour I can, so the consistency of the custard's got to be just right. I'm probably going to be shooting at a higher speed than normal frame rate, which is 25 frames a second. I might be shooting at 150 or something just to make it more elegant. And you can always speed it up again, but you can't slow it down. And then once I just had the pour going over it, I'll then intentionally make two or three other things happen. So maybe a bit of the crumbly crust of something just drops off so we've got that element so as the pause happening that can then also happen and then there may be a bit of ooze of some fruit somewhere else and then there may be a little corner of the cream crumbs around the back as well so you think you, you mess around the timings of all those events so that you choreograph a frame of action that's got four different things happening contemporaneously more or less but in fact it's four different moments that you've actually shot them because you can't get it all to happen at once and very possibly that's all happening within a quarter of a second of real, real time that then gets expanded say four seconds on film i just love the business of composition and lighting i i get a real satisfaction from it i think one of the sad things these days is that digitally you get an instant playback and that gratification is is less than in the old days which i used to refer to as sort of tantric filming where you would have the film would go off at the end of the day it would be processed overnight and then you've got the rushes back the next day so you'd have an anxious night at sleep asleep especially if you're shooting at high speed 600 frames a second and then you would see that the salad toss you did in front of a lots of big very very heavy lights very very bright you think you've got the moment you've done it about 10 times it's very tedious very bright and wearing to do and then suddenly the the take seven comes up and you're looking at the playback on a big screen and you say, oh my God, look at that, look at that, look at that. And everything's happening. It's exactly what you wanted. Or you then have to go back and reshoot it again. I, it, but that thrill, having to wait for it, was, was um, definitely worth the wait. Whereas now, you, 
now you know you've got it when you've got it and you can move on, which is useful, but at the same time not quite as thrilling. You must need an incomprehensible number of chocolate melting puddings to achieve the the kind of photography that you're doing. I mean, how do you, do you just go through them by the dozen? Well, I think the first thing is to try and get clients to understand that if they can pick the best of the bunch before they send us the 20, whatever they are. Or things like, if you're going to shoot a lamb leg being carved, what you don't want is them to send us 20 of them and, and, and 10 are left and 10 are right legs because you've composed everything for a left leg and not a right leg. So if they're going to do it, make sure they just send one leg from one side of the beast. I mean, silly little things like that you sort of learn. Yeah. And um, in a way, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. You get some clients who send a mean amount and you think the only thing in front of screen is going to be this food and that's the one thing you're scrimping on. You're mad. It's costing you £100,000 for two days to film this and there you are scrimping on the number of packets of something you're going to send. Why do, it's only going to cost you 10 quid more or something. Uh, and they, they don't get it. And then other times you just feel so guilty there's so much stuff that's sent. And so the crew go away with masses of goodie bags and things like that. And actually one of the crying shames is, is that in the old days um, I used to shoot out of a studio up in Camden and we used to, at the end of the day, all the spare food was sent down to Arlington House, which was a, a well, crudely referred to as a DOS house in those days for all the poor old down and outs in Camden. But now they refuse to accept it because it's not been vouched for by a supermarket or something. It's pathetic. And yet we're getting the freshest of ingredients before they even go on the shelves. So it was really sort of mad when you then see those poor guys out in the streets going through the bins. And yet they wouldn't, you know, be able to take in fresh chickens from us that we'd had literally straight from the farm um but there we are that's the absurdity of life today <laughs> and charlie are you always working with real food or are there kind of lots of photographers tips and tricks where you're actually using you know whatever it is super glue you're, or whatever. you're dwelling on the mythology aren't you the sort of mashed potato <laughs> ice cream to that? i think in the old days and i'm going before my time maybe people were doing a lot more jiggery-pokery like that, partly because you need really bright lights, which are super hot. Things perish very, very quickly. And in those days, film speeds were slower, for instance. Now the ASA rating or the, the, the speed that you can shoot digitally, the sensitivity of the chips is so much higher, you don't need quite so much brightness. So that's a great advantage. So you can tend to work with the real stuff. But more than that, uh, certainly since the mid-90s, there has become a real legal necessity to only use stuff that is the, provided by the suppliers who supply that client via the supermarket or is directly from that supermarket. You cannot go off-piste and grab a bit of fillet steak from your local organic butchers and put it in and to be replacing one from Aldi or whatever it is. It's just... If it got out to the press that you were faking it, then they would be getting all the bad press that would completely subvert the whole point of the advertising campaign. And, of course, the fast food boys are the ones who have been under the cosh, possibly deservedly some of the time. But I have been on shoots, less so with Burger King, who are quite cavalier. Not illegal, but I still cavalier. They want it to look sort of big, shot wide-angle, monumental. You really want to get stuck into it. McDonald's are very, very particular 
And they went through a stage of total paranoia where we were having a lawyer on set making sure the provenance was what it was. The amount we put into the burger was weighed out and was the standard amount, even down to the amount of mayo coming out of a syringe. It was unbelievably policed and a bit of a pain in the arse. But it, you know, people have been burnt badly on the PR front. And nowadays, I I think we're all, as photographers and, and filming food, a lot better at being quicker on the take. Home economists are better at it. So we're shooting ice cream. We do have dry ice very often around in the studio to help keep stuff super cool. I've even shot with dry ice above where we're shooting just to keep the heat down on the set. And uh, I suppose the only real, the only thing that you do possibly that's a bit of a trick is you don't completely cook a turkey or a bird, uh, a chicken, unless you're doing a carving shot so that it remains looking a bit plumper and before it starts to lose too many of its juices. And then you would use like a, a bit of marmite and very liquid usually on the skin just to sort of give it a bit more of a sort of sense of being cooked, you know, the sort of tanned look. Uh, but that's about it. I, I mean, there's n- the all, all the crazy stuff of yesteryear, which I was never really witness to, to be honest. I never used mashed potato for ice cream in my life. Um, it is, is long, long since gone. And tell us about your own eating habits what's comfort food for you you are you are someone who has spent many many years making comfort food look as delicious as possible what is it for you well not sophisticated i i'm not one to want to go to the the, the latest michelin starred restaurant in london or anything like that particularly i like pretty earthy food and i think it always gets back to ingredients if you've got good ingredients and you don't overcook it then you're pretty well in the right place for me you know I love to have just sort of prawns with garlic and then with a baguette and um, you know you're mopping up all the juices that sort of thing Get, getting the visceral quality of what you're eating really is important to me really good pasta I adore um, my youngest Freddie is really good at knocking up a vongole that sort of thing I pride myself in roasting things and then when it comes to uh, there's a wonderful recipe that a friend of mine does with uh, a fillet of beef, which, of course, always is like having to get a mortgage on it. And every single time I do it, I think, no, no, I should just let it... Re- letting meat rest is, is I've learned from all the home economists I work with, letting meat rest is the golden rule. And there it is. I'm poking around, just having a quick look to see if it's cooked enough. I think, no, it needs two more minutes, and I bloody well overdo it. And I should have just let it to let it be, and it would have carried on cooking itself. But but whether it's a chicken or a piece of beef or anything, setting it aside for 10 minutes, even quarter of an hour, it doesn't matter if it's not piping hot. That's not the point. It's all about the texture. And, yeah, I eat too much meat, one of my daughters tells me. And uh, But there you go. That's a generational thing. But I am blessed with children who do cook very well when they come round for me and uh, if they want to roll their sleeves up. And that's, uh, you know, the likes of Ottolenghi recipes, which are, you know, all that Middle Eastern flavouring and things like that. They're, they're dab hands at those rather complicated meals to rustle up. And uh, I don't mind handing the reins over to them to do it. What else do I love? Well, I can't. you can't beat beans on toast. One of the things I used to relish was in the summer holidays, 
my wife Deborah would take the kids off to go out to sort of stay with her mother in Norfolk. And I'd be back in London working away and I would adore the freedom of having no children in the house, no one to answer to, and I could sit with a plate of beans on toast and a bottle of Cote de Rhone. That was like heaven on earth. And Charlie, do you ever photograph your own food? I assume you have an iPhone which you could photograph uh, no, your food no. with. My son says, Dad, you absolute dinosaur, why have you not got Instagram going? Why you, Your profile could be so high, you're looking at great food the whole time. You know, we've been fortunate enough to go to, to some lovely places, you know, abroad on holidays, and you, one could have a running column. And I just sort of feel that's a bit of a busman's holiday, to be honest. There's enough going on, but he's probably right. I should be doing it, and I don't. Charlie, thank you so much for joining Table Talk. It's been a delight to have you. Thank you for joining us on the Spectator's Food and Drink podcast. For more recipes, food history, stories and drinks, you can head to the Spectator website. <laughs>